Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books and Political Science podcast. My name is Heath Brown, and on today I'll be talking to the author of Polarization, What Everyone Needs to Know. The book is published by Oxford University Press, and the author is Nolan McCarty. Nolan, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. We're in the middle of summer. Uh, it's hot. Uh, you have written this really interesting book that covers a lot of the things that people are talking about. Uh, and often talking about in not quite the right way. If they read your book, they would talk about it in a much more precise way. Before we talk about your this this work on polarization, maybe you can just share a little bit about yourself. Uh, sure. Well, I'm a, a professor of uh, politics and public affairs at uh, Princeton University. Uh, and I've been working on the topic of polarization uh, for about uh, 25 years now. So it's been quite a growth industry. I used to have to convince people that uh, it was actually happening. Uh, now I have to convince people maybe it's not as bad as I think it is. So it's come full circle. So uh, it's a delight to uh, have written the book and to be able to talk about it with your uh, listeners. Yeah, absolutely. It does feel like one of the benefits of sticking around is you you get to take those things that seem so novel and then they become commonplace. I guess that means you know you're right at some point. Um, so let's let's start with the book and and what I thought was a really useful explanation at the beginning of the book. Of, of three of the common versions of polarization. There's probably dozens more um, that people uh, use in, in kind of common parlance, but there's, there's sort of three core ones. And uh, you distinguish them in conceptual terms uh, at the beginning of the book, policy, ideological, and partisan polarization. I thought maybe we can start there just with a, maybe you could sort of briefly walk us through uh, what those three ways of talking about polarization mean, and then we'll, we'll get to the other parts of the, the, the book later. Sure, sure. Uh, so uh, as I note in the book, uh, polarization is a term that's often used to describe almost everything that's bad about American politics and increasingly bad about the politics of other countries. Uh, but I think it's very important to understand what's going on to make some important distinctions. So typically by polarization, we mean some process by which uh, uh, extreme viewpoints or extreme behaviors become more common relative to more moderate or centrist or, or conventional behaviors. So, so in the context of American politics, uh, there are very distinct ways in which we can think about that process of increasing extremes. Uh, we can think of it in terms of uh, uh, policy uh, positions uh, in the extent to which uh, take a particular policy area like abortion or gay rights uh, the extreme viewpoints on that issue become more common. There are many more pro-choice voters, many more pro-life voters, and the number of people who take a centrist position decline. So we could call that policy polarization. It's really specific to the policy preferences on a particular issue. Uh, uh, but more broadly than that, we can think in terms of ideological polarization. Uh, political science and social science and others have recognized that policy positions across issues tend to go together, cluster together in ways that are kind of, you know, semi-consistent. So people are, can be kind of consistently liberal or consistently conservative. 
So we can think of ideological polarization as a process in which the extent to which people are uh, consistently liberal or consistently conservative have grown relative to people whose positions tend to cluster on the moderate end of the scale. And so we can call that ideological polarization. Uh, But increasingly, there's been a third use of polarization, which uh, uh, I I understand why people use it, but it's become a little, I argue in the book, a little confusing. And that's to think purely in terms of uh, partisan polarization, the extent to which uh, Democrats uh, differ from Republicans. uh, And it's often used in kind of a a less policy-oriented way, more of an, an effective way meaning basically Democrats dislike Republicans increasingly, Republicans dislike Democrats increasingly. Uh, so that's a sort of a valid use of polarization, but it bleeds into a separate uh, concept of just simple simple partisanship. Uh, so one of the things I try to do in the book is where, you know, where it's really important for understanding the resurgence implications uh, to, draw out, to draw out those distinctions, try to say what is policy polarization, what is based on more broad ideological terms, and, and how much can be just thought of as just pure partisanship, tribalism, or as uh, it's been called in the literature, affective polarization. Right. Now, now, however one refers to it, polarization is especially meaningful if it varies dramatically. And I think there's a lot of ways that we feel like the world is growing more polarized, whether it's ideologically speaking or, or policy. But what do the data actually show us? And in chapter three, you do this survey of, of these various sources of data. What do the different measures tell us about this trend in, uh, you focus on elite polarization over the last hundred or so years? Um, that's right. So one of the things, when I talk about the trends and changes, uh, I should uh, really stress that distinction between elite polarization, the type of polarization that occurs uh, among party activists, elected officials, government officials, and that that uh, occurs at, at uh, lower levels than the mass public voters, uh, regular citizens. Uh, at the lead level, uh, we're able to use a variety of data sources uh, to kind of assess uh, long-term trajectories in polarization. So the most common use data is the congressional roll call voting record, where we can, uh, which exists for the entirety of U.S. history, and we can use either some uh, kind of uh, Conventional measures of the extent to which there's partisanship in voting, or some more sophisticated measures that attempt to uh, estimate the liberalism or conservatism of uh, members of Congress, uh, and we can use those to track the extent to which uh, different groups of legislators, in particular different partisan groups, uh, have diverged from one another, the extent to which they've stopped cooperating with each other. And so we get some pretty striking uh, patterns out of those data and that it shows both that polarization in contemporary United States is at a very high level relative to its history, but also that it's uh, varied a lot over time. Uh, so the most commonly used measures show that U.S. politics was very polarized from the end of, the end of Reconstruction uh, through the 1920s, began to fall uh, and stabilize at a low level throughout World War II, uh, the Great Depression, uh, much of the 1950s and 60s. And then our current uh, uh, trajectory of polarization really began uh, in, the late 19, in the late 1970s, uh, 76 or 77, uh, and has grown to levels that rival those 
that we saw uh, coming out of uh, coming out of reconstruction. So uh, it's both true that polarization is quite high. It's also true that it's, there have been times in U.S. history when it's been relatively low. That bipartisanship uh, uh, bipartisanship uh, was the norm. Uh, increasingly, we've been able to supplement uh, those data on congressional voting with a wide variety of other measures, measures based on surveys of candidates for office, uh, data that looks at campaign contribution patterns, uh, even data that looks at social media usage by members of Congress and by politically sophisticated people. Uh, and they all share the same data, uh, that American politics is uh, very polarized now. Uh, and then it's been growing over the past uh, uh, several several decades. Now, to say that elites are polarized is is one thing. To say the public is polarized is a very different thing. And and this is an area that's generated so much debate in the field. What are the rough sides of this debate, and and where do you come down uh, on on the one of the the, the major questions uh, dividing points in the field of the last say decade, couple decades? Yes, uh, it may surprise uh, many of your listeners and, and, and perhaps the readers of the book uh, that there actually is a debate as to whether or not the American public is polarized at all. Uh, so there's kind of a, uh, uh, you know, an, an influential argument by Morris Fiorina at Stanford, which says most of what we've seen in American politics is not polarization in a policy or ideological sense. He argues that the number of uh, centrists, either ideological or on a variety of policy issues, uh, has not gone down, that much of uh, uh, the distribution of political preferences is very kind of bell-shaped or normal, and that what we've seen instead is a, uh, is a pattern of partisan sorting where uh, conservative voters have increasingly identified with the Republican Party. Uh, and liberal voters uh, have increasingly uh, aligned with uh, the Democratic Party. Uh, so, you know, in his terminology, we don't see polarization. We merely see this process of partisan sorting. I'll come back in a second about the question about whether we should just treat sorting as a, as a mere phenomenon instead of as an important one. Uh, other scholars, notably Alan Abramowitz, have sort of questioned that interpretation of the data uh, and has really stressed the uh, extent to which the policy and ideological differences across partisans, especially uh, the more sophisticated and active partisans, have in fact grown over time in ways that he would, uh, he suggests are not uh, just simply merely sorting, but a, a broader process of polarization. So there, there's a debate about the extent of voter polarization, uh, in large part because it's hard to disentangle the just the sorting conservatives becoming Republicans and liberals becoming Democrats from the process of conservatives becoming more conservative and liberals becoming more liberal. Um, uh, the other aspect of this, though, is the timing. I don't think either uh, uh, set of scholars, there are a few exceptions of, of kind of newer work, but I don't think either of the people who've spent the most time working on this uh, have found evidence to suggest that the process of sorting among the public or polarization among the public uh, preceded uh, the polarization of the elites. So I think the most consistent interpretation of the data is that the elites, uh, high-level partisan actors, partisans, activists, party officials, you know, they polarize first, 
leading to a process both of sorting. So as the Republican Party becomes more conservative and the Democratic Party becomes more liberal, makes sense for conservatives to increasingly join the Republican Party and for liberal voters to increasingly join the Democratic Party, but also a process of polarization uh, as uh, voters, especially committed partisan voters, uh, tend to adopt uh, the policy preferences of their party. So I guess I come somewhere in the middle. I believe that there's you know important processes both of sorting and polarization. Uh, but the thing I would stress is that on some level, it doesn't matter very much. The fact that uh, the Republican Party base is uh, almost uniformly conservative and the Democratic Party base is almost as uniformly liberal or progressive uh, has in profound uh, implications for how American politics works, independently of whether it's polarization or sorting. About, I don't know, about a year ago, we had Sam Rosenfeld on the, the podcast talking about um, the uh, not the phenomenon of polarization, but the reaction of uh, scholars and others uh, to a period of low-level polarization. Uh, at the beginning of our conversation, you talked about this sort of almost universally being viewed as a bad thing. Um, is this a bad thing? Is it is it a okay thing? What are, what are the harms uh, that might be um, uh, felt from a period of of historical polarization? Where where do you come down? On, on what this um, uh, what the impact of this is on other uh, dimensions of our politics? Uh, sure, that, that's a great question. So, uh, in principle, polarization may not be a bad thing, and you know, and, and Sam had written a really good book explaining all the reasons why activists and scholars were upset about the lack of partisan differentiation. Because absent that partisan differentiation, it's very hard to hold parties accountable if parties don't have a clear uh, set of principles or brands. And so some level of polarization, I think, is extremely necessary for the functioning you know, of a democratic system. You know, we, we don't want all politicians to be in the middle when, voter, uh, when voters don't always share those middling preferences. Um, but I think that... Uh, our political institutions in the United States are not well suited for uh, high levels or extreme levels of polarization. Uh, you know, we have a system with lots of checks and balances, uh, separation of powers, uh, differences with the federal and the state levels. Uh, they require, you know, some level of cooperation uh, that usually can only be met if there's some sorts of bipartisan compromises. So polarization might... And I argue that it has reached a point in which if we can no longer make those bipartisan agreements or reach broad consensus, uh, that our system is just not going to function very uh, efficiently. Uh, if Congress can't pass laws, uh, then power will flow away from Congress and we'll see the aggrandizement of executives and judges. Uh, then we observe extreme politicization of the executive branch and the courts as a response to that. Uh, it creates its own set of problems. Uh, and so, you know, the, the commonly recognized dilemma of polarization is it creates legislative, at least in Congress, it creates legislative gridlock, has lots of downstream effects that I think have been very bad uh, for our politics. Uh, and then, of course, then there are the downstream effects into the public uh, and the public's willingness uh, to accept uh, uh, legitimate disagreements about political views 
uh, and that in turn creates a set of problems, uh, you know, for American democracy. So uh, a little polarization is a good thing. A, a lot of polarization, I think, creates a fair amount of collateral damage. How does Donald Trump fit into this story you tell? Is he more of the same, sort of fits on this trajectory that you've described, or something dramatically different, uh, either as a cause of, of more polarization or, or maybe simply a powerful force to lock current levels of polarization in for decades to come? So what about the president? Yeah, so... Um I, you know, that's the concluding chapter of my book. And obviously, uh, I mean, you don't always write the last chapter last, but in this case, I insist upon writing the last chapter last. Uh, In fact, the book even went out to reviewers without the last chapter because I didn't want to write that chapter, uh, you know, one second too soon. So I tackle exactly that question. You know, how much of Donald Trump is a continuation of patterns? that we've seen, how much of it's new, how much is of this of his presidency is likely to affect the extent of partisan polarization, and there are lots of uh, countervailing effects here. I mean, I mean, the first and most obvious is that Donald Trump uh, is not a conventional conservative in the sense that it was kind of defined in the kind of post-war fusion of kind of national security conservatives, libertarians, and and, and social conservatives. Uh, he has he took positions during his campaign that were anathema uh, to all three of those to all three of those groups uh, on infrastructure, on entitlements, even his immigration policies are outside the kind of ma- mainstream of his party. Although there was obviously a constituency for them, uh, and so an obvious thing to ask yourself is that such a heterodox candidate would he perhaps lead to reorganization of parties or depolarization because he took positions that were uh, typically traditionally associated with the Democrats and anathema uh, to his own party. So, so that was one possibility. But of course, what I argue happened is that, at least in many policy realms, uh, this heterodoxy couldn't manifest itself because it was... Uh, uh, so out of sync with the rest of his party, such that the only things that he really accomplished uh, in the first uh, you know, two years of his term were kind of conventional Republican things like tax cuts uh, and appointing uh, conservative judges uh, and pursuing a deregulatory agenda. All things in which I suggested uh, any conventional Republican president would have done uh, I think in the book I refer to that generic president as Jeb Rubio. Uh, so, you know, it was very mm-hmm. much on those issues. It was much, very much tight Trump's heterodoxy. It was, uh, you know, it was a Jeb Rubio presidency. Uh, the exception, of course, has been the kind of the, the norm, the political norm busting. Uh, Donald Trump's uh, attempts to accelerate what political scientists have called affective polarization, negative partisanship. Uh, demonizing the uh, demonizing uh, the other party uh, to try to lead to you know some level of breakdown in conventional you know bipartisan give and take uh, in order to win elections and there he has exacerbated exacerbated polarization uh, and created a situation where it's going to be very very hard for uh, Republicans and Democrats to work together to solve to solve policy problems, and so I think there will be 
uh, a lasting a lasting impact. Uh, I at the time, you know, I wrote the book. I was uh, not. I didn't take the direst view of the of the implications of his norm breaking and uh, attempts to accelerate uh, negative partisanship. I wrote something at the end, like you know, the fabric of our constitutional system was worn but not torn. Uh, I spell checked the last section, uh, got it ready to send to the publisher. Uh, and then Jeff Sessions was fired. So I resist. I resisted the temptation to reopen, you know, the browser and the <laughs> and rewrite that last sentence. Uh, but I still think that's an open question about whether or not it's worn and not torn, or, or whether uh, it's been actually torn. Yeah, the the book again is polarization. What everyone needs to know. Uh, the book is published by Oxford University Press. Nolan McCarty is the author who you've been hearing from. Nolan, thank you very much for your time. Great. Thanks for having me.